Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on walking, Lord. Keep on talking, Lord. Marching to the freedom land. Ain't gonna let no sheriff turn me round, turn me round, turn me round. Ain't gonna let no sheriff turn me round. I'm gonna keep on walking, Lord. That's why we always begin our meetings and broadcast with music, folks. Lift the spirits from the gloom and doom around us and within us. It's December 18th. I'm Kevin Annate, Eagle Strong Voice. This is the voice of the Republic and the Resistance, the program that for eight years has resisted every effort by criminal systems to turn us around, away from our natural selves and the world given to all of us. Today, how the lid first came off genocide in Canada, a radical remembrance by yours truly. Now, radical, of course, is from the Latin word radis, which means the root, going to the root of things. And that's what our memories do. They remind us of who we are, what we've been through. The simple power and will and determination to carry on regardless of the odds and the losses, that's what keeps us alive, folks. But the truth is, we're going to talk about that today, the truth is that we have allowed ourselves to be turned around. We've allowed ourselves to go along with a blood-soaked system and in the process, forget who we are and what we have fought for and won over many battles by forgetting the hard-won lessons learned from those fights, lessons paid for in blood. Well, today on Here We Stand, we're going to recover that vital memory, a part of it at least, so that we can be prepared and armed for the battles yet to come. You can find everything we talk about today, the images, the newspaper clippings, all of it, the hard evidence at murderbydecree.com. As you're going to hear in the midpoint part of the show today, a reflection I did three years ago, the uh, real issue at Christmas isn't nice presents and punch, even though that's always good. The theme today in the reflection is, ironically, the Christmas story begins with killing, the slaughter of the innocents, King Herod hearing about the baby Jesus and ordering the death of all the firstborn. It's kind of strange how this whole theme of the murder of the firstborn, lost children, how appropriate it is for this time of year, because as we know, the killing of children is as normal and legal in our culture as war and genocide. 
That's why when people say nothing's fixed, nothing's healed, folks, because the crime carries on. And the, but the greatest threat to that crime and to the criminals are the eyewitnesses themselves, provided that they keep shutting out their truth, shouting out the truth till the moment they last draw breath. Well, today on the show, we are going to begin at the beginning of a 27-year-old battle. It started 27 years ago today with an article in the Vancouver Sun newspaper featuring a woman, my friend Harriet Nahani, the first person ever to go public with the description of a killing of a child at a Canadian residential school. Claim of murder goes back to 40s. And in that article, it really started the whole campaign which led to the present day. That 27-year battle to expose and then prosecute and stop child murder and genocide, first in Canada and around the world, that battle began on a cold December morning in 1995 in Vancouver. At a protest I organized outside the offices of the United Church of Canada. It followed my firing that year, my illegal firing at the hands of the church, after I had objected to the policies of the church and the murder of the children in the United Church residential schools. And at that protest on 4th Avenue in Vancouver, outside the United Church office, a woman called Harriet Nahani showed up. Zebeot, her name was. She was a West Coast woman of the Pachida tribe, a survivor of the United Church death camp for children called the Alberni Indian Residential School, and an eyewitness to the murder of little 14-year-old Maisie Shaw by school principal Alfred Caldwell, Caldwell on Christmas Eve, 1946. And as I mentioned, that same week, December 1995, Harriet went public with the truth of that murder. Well, two days after that, on December 20th, Harriet and I held the first public protest ever about residential school murders outside the downtown Catholic Anglican and United Churches in Vancouver. And the movement that would one day topple a pope and force Canada to admit his genocide came into being that day with the two of us. But not only that came into being, but so did an enormous and deadly counterattack by those responsible for the crime and even worse ones. That three-headed serpent of church, state, and big money that is now inflicting the same genocide on all of us. Because the day after our protest, Harriet was evicted from her home on the Squamish Indian Reservation, and my wife Anne was directed and paid by the United Church lawyer John Jessamine to start her divorce and child custody action against me that robbed me of my two daughters. Those counterattacks only worsened over the years that followed, as neither Harriet nor I gave up, despite all the blacklisting and assaults and a state-sponsored smear and black ops campaign, a campaign that RCMP Inspector Peter Montague, who led that campaign, boasted spent over $20 million to shut down our campaign. But our work grew as more eyewitnesses came forward, and this February marks three important events in that calendar. Three important anniversaries of that escalating campaign, which we will be commemorating again this year as usual. First of all, February 1st was the anniversary of the launching of the first lawsuits of Alberni survivors, February 1st, 1996. February 9th, two years later, in 1998, the first public meeting of survivors held at the Simon Fraser University downtown campus in Vancouver. I'm looking at the poster of it right now, and it describes Harriet and myself and two eyewitnesses, Dennis Talio and Harry Wilson, featured at that meeting, which, by the way, for the first time, over 500 people came out, most of them survivors of the Indian death camps. That was the first rally of its kind ever in Canada. And 
we talked that day as well of the other issue that got me fired, the selling off of native land by the United Church to its corporate benefactors, Macmillan, Bloedel, and Weyerhaeuser. All of these issues of big money, church and state, all converging at that first public meeting. And then, of course, another event that same year, June 1998, our first tribunal, yeah, the IRAM tribunal in Vancouver that systematically brought out these crimes and documented them for a U.N. group called IRAM, followed by, in July and August, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien launching a covert operation to silence not only me, but all witnesses who weren't on the government payroll. Really a continuation of the United Church and RCMP collusion that had caused my expulsion, the divorce action, and the attempted shutting down of this campaign as early as 1997, but it didn't shut it down. So, of course, the other date in February we remember is the murder of the medical murder of William Coombs on February 26, 2011, killed in St. Paul's Hospital just before he was to come and give testimony about his witnessing of the abduction of 10 children disappeared forever at the hands of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, and as it turns out, her son Charles, now so-called King of England, who has already been served an indictment for his involvement in those disappearances of two children, especially their killing, subsequently at Carnarvon Castle in Wales, October 30th, 1964. All of that began to come out, and people ask, well, you know, it's time to make another documentary on this, Kevin, and in fact we're doing that. But I remember a quote from Thomas Jefferson when he was asked to write a history of the American Revolution. And Jefferson said, it cannot be written. The history of our revolution can never be written or told. It could only be experienced. And that's what I think about our campaigns. We can try to describe it, but secondhand description never gets into the heart and the spirit of something. You had to be a survivor and gone through it. Well, that's why these days it feels like I'm the lone survivor of Atlantis, because there's no one left, really. Harriet and I, the movement we began, she died, was killed subsequently, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, she and I had a long history together. We met at that picket outside the United Church office in 1995. We had that protest right away. Her story hit the newspapers, and for years after that, she joined us constantly. You can see her in our um, featured in our documentary, Unrepentant, talking about it. I remember she showed up when the church threw me out in a staged public show trial, really, the first and only public defrocking of a United Church minister in its history, after I began bringing all this stuff out. And uh, Harriet stood outside the church in the west end of Vancouver, the United Church, where they were formally defrocking me. And uh, she was walking around in front of the church with a sign saying, churches are evil and the work of the devil. And she would talk over and over about the murder of Maisie Shaw that she witnessed that night, Christmas Eve 1946, at the hands of Alfred Caldwell. She and I exposed the fake death certificate issued by the provincial government. After our protest began, even though there wasn't a death certificate for Maisie Shaw, suddenly it appeared in their archives, planted there by the RCMP, as it turned out. All of that was something Harry and I built over time. But... Unfortunately, on January 24th, 2007, she was arrested at a protest, the Sea to Sky protest in Vancouver, blocking the destruction of traditional Squamish lands by that highway. She was arrested, and even though she was suffering from pneumonia, Judge Brenda Brown committed her to the worst prison in Vancouver, Surrey Remand Center, an unheated cell where, sure enough, a month later, 
she dies of lung cancer developed over the previous month, February 24th, 2007. So again, another judicial murder. What this fight is really about, and as I mentioned earlier, slaughter of the innocents and of innocence. It isn't just the slaughter of the innocents that we hear about in the residential schools by King Herod and the biblical descri- description of Christmas, but also of innocence, our innocence. I remember there was a quote Jean-Paul Sartre gave once where he said, the price that one pays for accommodating to the world is we remain dead souls waiting to be born. And I, I think of that whenever we, over the years, look at the response, or rather lack of it. It's always been just a few handful of us, a bare pittance compared to all the people upset now about COVID. But we say to these people, where were you when we were exposing the same crimes being done to Aboriginal children? Going back to 1874, where you can't refuse a shot in the arm or you go to jail. Where were all of us then? Where were all of you then? And so what basis do you have now to complain about it happening to you when you were not there for so many others? That isn't... uh, an attempt to make you feel guilty. It's the reality. The blowback and payback happens. The law of return in nature. If you don't fight it then, it happens to you now. So instead of commiserating now about everything happening to us, let's look at this history, as we're going to hear about more today, and reflect on our complicity in it, because it's only when you embrace that complicity that you're able to be free of it. When you deny it, when you look away, it controls you. That's true about anything dark within us. And... The thing that I always remember about Harriet Nahani Zabayot is she was never afraid. The most horrible tortures you can imagine happened to her every night because she was the daughter of a CM, a traditional elder. And like William Coombs, who was a spirit dancer, the traditional people were most targeted for killing and torture by the white churches and state and big money because they knew they had the sacred knowledge. And Harriet, from age nine onward, probably earlier. That's the time she admitted and remembered. But they took her into the Principal Caldwell's office every night and gang raped her. Every night as a child. And I remember the saying, the cries that never stop in hearts that are still alive. That's what a lamentation means. And I remember, you know, I don't know if you know the Bible well, but the book of Lamentations, it's read about around the Psalms, and it's the people crying out for having been sent into exile and seeing their own homeland destroyed. And someone once said, I remember in one of our um, abstract theology classes at seminary, Vancouver School of Theology, where we trained for the ministry, somebody said uh, that the Book of Lamentations is really the only honest one in the Bible because it breaks open doors by mourning, by realizing there's no hope left, then a new door can open. And I think about this often when we look at the non-response to this campaign. Now, even when Bergoglio and Trudeau both admit the genocide happened. Now that these churches are proven to be have mass murder and the blood of children on their hands, the excuse of ignorance isn't there anymore, folks. And yet we put out a call to protest and to occupy these churches, nobody shows up. We put out a call to have the petition your town council to nullify tax exemptions to this child-killing genocidal machine called the Vatican, no response. What is it? is it that they control our minds so much, that beast in Rome from which a lot of these crimes emanate, that entity that gave birth to Western civilization, did they control us all so much that we're not even able to lift our thoughts or our hands against it? And if we don't, the children who died today and tomorrow because of it? Reflect on that. 
What is holding you back? Is it not important to you? Is it your own well-being more important? Those are the moral questions you have to ask, because when you ask why are the child-killing churches allowed to operate, knowing that the killing continues, there is no statute of limitation on murder under the law. It can happen 200 years ago, and it's still actionable. Similarly, there's no moral statute of limitation. Need to reflect on that. And before we hear this reflection in a few minutes, I want to share another way it all began. Because as a United Church minister in Port Alberni, I, I always faced tough sledding from my white parishioners. This is before I was fired. But I, I got opposition from them whenever I, I invited Aboriginal people to take part in our Sunday service, especially when we serve communion. Whenever a native man or woman stood with me at the front of the church on a Sunday morning holding the bread and the juice, the usual white communion participants would look troubled and they would stay glued to their pews, their eyes downcast. But on one occasion, the incident was sublimely prophetic and a foreshadowing of what was to come. I had asked a local Seychet native woman called Sadie to hold the communion bread and say the so-called words of institution, a task normally reserved for the minister. As Sadie had just recently revealed, she was a survivor of horrible torture at the Alberni Residential School death camp, operated by our church just a mile down the road. As a few tentative white parishioners approached Sadie and me for communion, Sadie muttered the words, This is my body, broken by you. Well, she was supposed to say broken for you, but she said broken by you, which was more honest and accurate. Her body, broken by the white church. And there, like a thunderbolt, it all became real all of a sudden. Too real for some people. Because several of the parishioner, white, older parishioners got up angrily and stormed out of the church at her words. But then other people looked at Sadie as if for the first time. And some of them began weeping. And that's when the doors began to open. Because then more of the whites stood and came forward to receive the truth made flesh. Well, it's like the poet Walt Whitman wrote, I find miracles at every moment scattered at our feet like love letters from God. That's how close miracles are, folks. Unfortunately, after that false dawn that day in church came the night and the storms. We're going to take a break and listen to a reflection by me, given three years ago now, and we'll be back after that. Hi everyone, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice again. This is my sermon for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. It's entitled, Slaughtering Children, Business as Usual in the Palace. This is about the slaughtering of the innocent by King Herod. And when the wise men had left, look, a heavenly messenger came to Joseph and cried, Wake up! Take the baby Jesus and mother and flee to sanctuary and live there until I bring word. For King Herod will seek to destroy the baby. Then Herod set out in his wrath to exterminate all of the helpless innocents in Bethlehem and its region, who were two years old and younger, relying on the knowledge of the wise men. And from every hilltop came the call call to mourn and to weep inconsolably, for the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. While their tiny butchered remains lie under your feet, They were happy, innocent children, and they were slaughtered and thrown into secret graves. Just think about it. Try to imagine that. Try to picture it and feel their suffering. Well, can you? Will you dare to? 
because they died at the hands of church and state. These were official killings. And so you're not just supposed to ask about what happened to those children. You're not supposed to even know or care what happened. Or even imagine the experience of it happening. You're not even allowed to cry out and horror and an outrage and call for the horror to stop. Your heart is to remain distant and numb, just as the victims are to remain silent and forgotten, or to remain invisible, because the killers are still in charge. The killers of those children are still running the governments and the churches and the businesses. And if you mention the fate of those babies and ask who is to blame and why it happened, the killers will strike at you. So do the smart thing. Stay quiet. Think of nice, positive things. Pay your taxes that allow the crimes to continue. And don't imagine those mass graves of children or the horrible screams of babies being chopped to pieces. Sacrifice your soul as their little bodies were sacrificed. All for the service of the emperor. You can do something else instead. It's risky, but it's possible. You can do what your soul and those victims require. You can risk everything in your life for the sake of the lost children. And for all the others who will die today and tomorrow at the hands of the same killers robed in stately office. Well, that's the situation today in Canada, in America, or anywhere else in the so-called civilized world here in the year 2019. The same was true in Judea in the year 4 BC. The crime and the choice continue. In a way, that's all there is to say today. What matters is not what we say, but what we do. All the words spoken over the years, all the long interviews and tomes written about child sacrificial killings and genocide by church and state and baby trafficking, none of those words have stopped the killer's knives. The crime continues today unabated. And the only way it's ever going to stop is when we place our own bodies between those innocent victims and the killers who are coming for them. This sermon, like my life, is dedicated to that purpose, to stop them. Well, today it's obscenely ironic that the Christian churches that have spilled the blood of so many children will be presenting the gospel reading on the forthcoming Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. When you consider the enormous anger and denial among Canadian churchgoers, whenever we've tried speaking to them about their genocidal acts, you can bet that very few people in the pews in the Anglican, the Catholic, the United Churches this Sunday, very few of them are going to draw a connection between Herod's slaughter of the innocent babies and his attempted slaughter of Jesus that they hear in the Bible, connecting that with their own murder of over 60,000 Aboriginal children over a century in the so-called residential schools. Because the Christians' once-a-week happy hour in church is not designed to place themselves in the Bible story or make it apply to their own lives. Well, despite all that, the blood of the innocent still cries out through the strongest cathedral church door and the most completely closed human heart. As the Gospel passage today concludes, the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. They cannot be comforted by all of the apologies by church and state killers, or all the reconciliation babble, or all the blood money payoffs, or all the fake government inquiries. Because there's no moral statute of limitation on murder any more than there's a legal one. The guilt remains. 
The killers of children stand convicted and guilty and sentenced by the very fact of their crime, even if they be kings and rulers and popes. Well, that's the powerful message in today's Gospel reading from Matthew. It's made doubly powerful by how closely it reflects how things actually operate in the world of politics, then and now. For this is a story of the ritual killing of children, one of the oldest practices in history, and a practice of church and state as common and as legal as war and genocide. The story goes, a group of so-called wise men, hired and dispatched by King Herod himself, search out a rumor that a baby is about to be born who's going to overthrow King Herod. There's kind of a dark humor that runs through this whole passage. (coughs) Like any politician, Herod blithely cons the not-so-wise men into being his agents. He says, you know, I want to worship that newborn Messiah too. Please go find him. Well, the murderous intent is always surrounded in that religious garb that self-righteous projection. Because it isn't, a, isn't it a fact that people, and especially rulers, can more easily kill and order killing when they know that there's a God who sanctions and forgives them for all their deeds. And so like obtuse academics or unwitting spies on a black ops mission, the bright boys go to work for the killer on a throne. They eventually discover the little threat called Jesus in a manger, and they dutifully inform the king. Well, are these guys naive? Are they just doing their job? Are they just stupid? Either way, their news frightens Herod and makes him even more paranoid than he already is, like anyone with a lot to lose. He sees conspiracies everywhere. He distrusts his bright boys and he tries to have them arrested. Well, failing that, he then goes after baby Jesus, using the information so conveniently provided by his wise guys. But Jesus and his family have been tipped off, and they skedaddle away to a safe house somewhere. Well, frustrated not once, but twice, Herod has to save face, and so like any ruler feeling his power slipping from him, he commits crime. He orders mass murder. Every child in the area under two years old is killed. Well, this clumsy scattergun approach fails to hit Jesus, of course, and one can almost hear the gospel writer chuckling up his, the sleeve of his robe despite all the bloodshed. Warning. Exile. Murder. The usual pattern of corporate damage control. And then, of course, comes the final stage, the great mourning of this ritual killing that can never find comfort, the cries that never stop in any heart that's still alive. That's how this gospel story concludes, with the reality of life. Nothing is healed, nothing is fixed, because it's carrying on. And the killers don't feel sorry at all. And that should be evident. Well, it may this gospel passage may end on that message of mourning, unending mourning and wailing. But when you look deeper, that's the biblical answer to official murder. To the ones who never worry about covering up their mess because they know it's all legal and they're going to get away with it, like they always do. The Bible says, sure, go ahead, worldly rulers can get away with anything, even the ritual satanic slaughter of children. Just look around the world, people. It's the norm. In the Mormon Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, all the major religions do it. That's been documented. We know that now for a fact. Just look at murderbydecree.com. Okay, that may be the fact of the world, but the survivors are a threat to all of that. The ones who survive with the memory and the knowledge of what these bastard criminals are doing, they're the answer. Because they can remember the crime and the fallen ones. 
That's a great power they, because they can keep the truth and the memory alive. The memory of those children are kept alive by the survivors, but only, only if they keep on shouting out the truth loudly and publicly, not going into counseling and feeling better about yourself and staying quiet or giving a gag order after giving a bit of money <laughs> from the killers. No, that's not what we're to do. We're to keep shouting out the crime loudly. That's the only way we pay homage to the fallen and honor them. It's the only way this thing is ever going to stop. By letting God's own pain and outrage yell through our mouths. That's the wrong that's carrying on today. And that shout against the wrong carries on forever. That's the nature of God. It doesn't back off with the truth like we're always pressured to do. Well, isn't it amazing how even at his birth, Jesus caused hysteria among rulers and poses such a threat to established authority. Our innocence and honesty always evokes that kind of reaction in the guilty and causes them to come down on us. Like any truth teller, Jesus became a refugee from state terror from day one and a wanderer in poverty and exile. And he stayed that way to the day of his judicial murder on a cross. So it's no accident that Jesus has always been a symbol and a great inspiration to the poor and the oppressed everywhere, for his life and death as the permanent outsider mirrors their own experience of the world. Well, middle-class churchgoers are another matter. They can't relate to the man, Jesus, except as an abstract cult figure. They tend to be left cold by the human Jesus and by any equating of him with rebellion against the established order or with the underclass even though scripture is full of that association of him and the poor, him of, and the struggle to overturn existing society. Well, as a clergyman, I constantly experience this dichotomy between how the poor view Jesus and how the affluent do. Take Jesus' first message when he gets up in, the, in Luke 4, they describe this, when he gets up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and proclaims, that he's come to set the captives free, to raise up the poor and to open the prison doors and let everyone free. Well, that passage has always tended to alarm and confuse the my wealthier parishioners. It genuinely confused them. said, like, what is this anarchist trying to do, right? But it brought, the same passage brought a relief of smile and amusement among poor folks, among Indians, among the other outcasts in the pews. This divide in the response of rich and poor became even greater when Jesus concludes his proclamation by announcing that he's inaugurating something called the Jubilee Year, that Hebrew tribal event that was really a social revolution. It's when all the debts were canceled, all the land and wealth returned to people, shared equally. It was that leveling down of society, the Jubilee Year. Well, Jesus, in other words, has been causing upset and turning things upside down ever since the day of his birth, and we still see that in the churches today and in any of us who try to embody that radical message. Well, that fact in today's gospel message doesn't exactly fit the feel-good, festive, middle-class Christmas season. Because it lays out the four turbulent realities that characterize Jesus' life and work, like a cycle of life and death. A warning of danger, an escape into exile, a massive killing of the innocent, and a mourning for those fallen. To understand that, we have to go deeper into those four actions in the story by understanding their word origin and meaning. Well, the first action is a warning issued by unseen protectors, often the only ones who do help us. You have to get away now or you'll be destroyed. That warning. Well, the Greek word for warning is krematso, and that means to be admonished by God and given a new purpose and name. You're not just given a warning. You say, okay, here, 
Here's some camouflage. Here's a new identity so you can escape. In other words, you're not only yanked to your feet all of a sudden, but you're garbed with a new identity to get you the hell out of there. How else can you operate in this kind of murderous and deceptive world? Second step, you flee into exile. The word is fuego. In Greek and Latin, means to fly, to fly away. But there's more to it than that. The word also means you shun evil by departing from it. So in other words, this fleeing isn't an act of fear, but it's actually part of a positive step into an inner cleansing of separating ourselves from the evil, evil around us that inevitably affects us. Going into exile from everything we know is our first spiritual act in order to reform ourselves according to a higher heavenly aim. Throughout our many myths and legends, it's like that. The hero leaves his home country and people to go into foreign lands in order to discover his true, true purpose and his true strength. Well, because of that, the boot always comes down. The empire strikes back, state terror, then slays the innocent. Step three. In Matthew 2, verse 16, the Greek word for slay, as in slew the innocent, is anoreo. And that means to steal and then exterminate. The way animals are grabbed, bound up, penned in a cage, and then ritually slaughtered. The same word is used to describe sacrificing an animal or a child. It's part of a massive blood ritual going back thousands of years, whereby people believe that they were purified by the killing of something that is totally pure and innocent. You find in the, word, the Hebrew word kadash, it means two things all at the same time. It means to sanctify, to make holy, and to sacrifice. We make something holy by murdering it. And there you have it. Bingo, the source of the crime. For wired into the language and thought of Judeo-Christianity is the ancient tribal belief that one cannot truly worship God and be made pure without ritually murdering the best, the purest, and the most innocent among us. Why else were the firstborn children of the Canaanites bound and thrown into the fire pit of their rapacious god Moloch, the fire god who ate children? Why was God's own firstborn son Jesus sacrificed on a cross? And why today is the death of the firstborn children of Ninth Circle cult members in the Mormon and Catholic churches the ticket of admission into the higher circles of those organizations? For all the same reason. Innocent blood is still believed to be our key to worldly power and even ultimate paradise in heaven. Beyond sick. But what can do, one can do in the face of this murderous infamy? This monstrous crime, what can one do in the face of it but wail and mourn without end? And we're not, wailing isn't just complaining, it's shouting out a message. This kind of unending lamentation follows from the crime that we talk about today. In verse 18 in the passage today, the word for lament is threnos. The word in Greek, threnos, which means to cry out forever. It doesn't stop. But it also means, there's a double meaning again, it also means to warn, trouble, and frighten. As the mothers of the slain children who cannot be comforted cry out on their agony, they're also issuing a warning to the world, one that troubles and frightens people, as it must. For what else than that can rouse a compliant, a complicit population who are party to these crimes? What else can arouse them from that to do more than simply feel sorry for the victims? The gospel message today, and like so much of the gospel, is not meant to be politely listened to and then go away unmoved. 
It has to cause an eruption in the listener for change to work. There has to be an inner turmoil that breaks us free from the chains of evil and slavery forged on us since birth. Without that inner explosion, our hearts and lives will continue to be unmoved by the mass murder of children and will continue to refuse to stop the killers. And so now, each of you have a choice to make. You too have been warned to flee from such an association with death. You must accept a new name and purpose and go into exile from your life. From all that you have known, if you are to be made fit to bear witness to the crime and to give voice to the grief and to the fallen children. All of this is for a higher purpose, to make you fit to be the means of God's revolution by which the blood-soaked rulers and their evil prince of darkness are destroyed forever as the new creation dawns. As Jesus says later in the Gospel of Matthew, that which you refuse to do for me, you're refusing to all of my children, and that which you do to the least of my children, you also do to me. Well, may the great mystery lead you from this land of lies and murder, and remake you in your own exile to be fit for the coming world, and for the least of these are suffering children. Their cries continue to reach out to you. Amen. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. stuff and not meant for everybody. I've learned that the hard way that I had a long period where I, I thought the way a clergyman is trained to think. And that is, you've got to reach out to everybody and make it acceptable to everyone. And what you end up doing by that is watering down the message to make it acceptable. Somebody warned me when I was about to be ordained in the United Church of Canada, they say, well, it's filled with spiritual jello. And I didn't know what they meant by that till I was in it. And that is the greatest offense in the church is not killing people. It's not raping anybody. It's not stealing. It's causing controversy and division. The C word in Canada. Of course, I remember the Athenian lawmaker Solon, who said, it is a crime in a true democracy for any citizen to shrink from controversy. So in that light, let's proceed. Let's talk about how we go from word to action. Now, this whole, I don't want to call it an issue, it's our life and death, really, because what happened to the children is reflected all around us now. It's happening to all of us. And that genocidal agenda is now working overtime. And we see it in the things like the COVID police state and that, but it's a lot deeper and a lot wider than any of us can even understand or imagine or will ever even know. But we all know when a God is happening, and we don't have a future as the human race unless we resist this, what I call techno-formation, being adapted into a global machine through our iPads and other devices that interface our neurons directly with the machinery and make us, in effect, cybernetic organisms. That's the ultimate aim. It isn't simply genocide. It's really omnicide, the destruction of everybody and their transformation into this thing. It's strange. It's kind of like in the Bible when they say, somewhere in the Psalms, those who worship dead idols will become like them. Well, we worship the technology so long it's, we're becoming it, literally. And the only way to stop that omnicide is to take action now where it is most hidden. And I tell you, one of the places it's hidden itself and germinated in is an organized religion, because that's the last place people are going to look, right? 
And we've proven that in the crimes. The most recent one on our show a while ago, we talked about the recent ritual killing of those 10 Cree Indians in Saskatchewan, and then the showing up of the convicted war criminal, Archbishop of Canterbury, Anglican Church leader Justin Welby, and Trudeau and the Governor General to help cover up that crime for their fellow shareholders in Rio Tinto Diamond Mining Company. And all of that is symptoms of the same illness. And so we find that when we strike at not only the corporate center of power, but also the churches that have been responsible for the genocide, we evoke a reaction far beyond our numbers. That's because you're hitting close to a nerve. So that's what we've talked in the show about the, the recent campaign, especially, and it's not recent, of course, like I say, it goes back almost 30 years, but the recently emphasized campaign about going, starting your own community, going to your town council and saying the Catholic Church is a proven, admitted genocidal body. By giving a tax exemptions and other privileges, you are aiding and abetting a crime, and you're convictable under the law, which means that the next election we're going to throw you, the mayor, and the town councillors out unless you nullify tax exemptions for the Catholic Church. Now, we've had people all over the planet trying this, and it works incredibly well. The town council, none of it spearheaded, uh, spearheaded the whole effort in Canada, where they nullified tax exemptions just before Bergoglio shows up on his farcical visit uh, this last year. And so we know how to do it. In fact, we posted online the motion to take to your town council about it. We have leaflets and other organizing and training material for that. Just write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. For the few of you who ever do write in, please write to Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. A few of you acting can have a disproportionate effect, and we've proven that in Canada time and again. You just don't stop and look at the effect a handful of us have had. And the other aspect, of course, another aspect is to say, well, ultimately it's not a matter of just simply shutting down these churches, which they need to be. The Catholic, Anglican, United Churches in Canada, the Church of England, Church of Rome, all over the planet, we must shut them down. We're obligated to do that under the law now. How do we go about doing it? Direct action. If the town council and the government aren't going to nullify the tax exemptions, we do it ourselves. We say we're going to have a direct citizen's tax exemption campaign. We go into the churches and seize the collection plates. We've done that. And when the cops or others show up to try to stop us, we say this money is going towards a transnational criminal organization. Proven. So we have the obligation to seize this money, and we've had fun. What we do, we've done this a few times in Vancouver. We let a lot of the homeless people in the downtown east side know they should show up at this church at a certain hour. And they all show up, and we take the collection plates and hand out the money to all of them. Now, somebody said we should do that. Let's see, I'm trying to remember who that was. Somebody, I think, called Jesus, said, One thing you lack to find salvation Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then come follow me. Well, we'll say to the church people and the media and the cops present, we're just enacting what it says in the gospel, folks. How come you aren't? <laughs> so these moments are great theater. They're great funny moments that turn the tables. I remember uh, George Bernard Shaw said, the one thing the rich and powerful fear is to, be in a, is to be laughed at. And that's exactly how we do it on the ground. That's one example. And I know a few of you in Australia are planning on doing this. Um, those of you who are listening, please share your experiences. Film it, uh, not only in Australia, but in America and Canada and everywhere we try this. Film it and put it online as a way to inspire other people. We have a great little pamphlet we published called Church Stoppers Manual. 
25 ways of shutting down the Antichrist in your community. And there's all sorts of historical things you can do. Don't forget these buildings are public property. They're paid for with taxpayers' money. We have every right to enter churches and seize the property, not only because we have that right under the law as taxpayers, but we're obligated to shut down transnational criminal organizations. So this is something that when you do it, strikes fear into the hearts of these people. When we first started to do it in 2007, and uh, it immediately evoked a response. And when we did it in a big way across the country in March 2008, within three weeks, the government had announced their, quote, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Their cover-up, of course, of these crimes, but it was in direct response to our occupations of the churches in Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Toronto. And so these are tactics that work. Uh, and you know, the, the other issue here, of course, is that this is one of the ways that within ourselves, if it's possible, we get clean and we get right. Because I remember um, uh, my, my friend Colia Clark, who we talked about a few weeks ago, black civil rights leader, beautiful woman. She said there was only one man. She, she was friends with Malcolm X in New York, and she said, Malcolm told me once there was only white, one white man she, he would ever trust, and that was John Brown, because he took up arms against his own people on behalf of the slaves, and he paid the price for it. Well, when you say to do that, you've got to do it in a way that isn't just a gesture. You've got to be willing to suffer what all our victims have suffered. And when they, Native people in Canada often say this to me, they say, we're not going to get together with white people. Why should we? You know, you put us through this, you're not willing to stand by. When we protest, we get killed. You just get a slap on the hand and you go to jail. We get killed. So we're not going to go out and help you until you're willing to risk the same way for us. And so we've got to prove that in practice, that we're against the genocide. We're not just playing a Scrabble game here, folks, where we move the words around, letters around and make nice words, which is what people do now. Their equation of action is going on the Internet and talking a lot. That isn't what changes the world. Now, I have a, an example of how we do that, a really nice image from Marcus Aurelius, that kind of funny guy. He was a Roman emperor, and yet he was also an amazing philosopher who was against imperial thinking. Um, and he said, when you go to fight, your response and stance should be that of a boxer rather than a gladiator, because a gladiator has to pick up a weapon, a sword or a spear or something. He needs external equipping. But a boxer only has to clench his fists and fight. In other words, we're self-sufficient. We, know we don't need any tools or weapons other than those within ourselves. We clench our fists and we fight. That's something all of us can do. That inner fist, our resolve, our heart, our high mind and high heart, and our ability to go to the wall for those who we've wronged and for those strangers who you never see until you start fighting in that way. And I often say to people, don't look at all the people I want you to look at. Don't look at the ones with billions of dollars like a Trump or a Pope or all the people who claim to be doing good things. That's their money speaking. Look at the people who have nothing, who have yet nevertheless changed things. People like Harriet Nahani, people like Harry Wilson, people like me, who had had to have everything stripped from me. And like, even though under the gun and lost everything, look at what we achieved something with people and money and power never did because there was a power in us that you can't have when you're sword like a gladiator and relying on the means of this world. So that's something I need you all to keep in mind. Those of you can hear this, 
It's all within you. Just clench your fists and act. Don't worry about the paraphernalia. That'll come when you take that first essential act. And that's what I see lacking a lot today, folks. People have forgotten that because their minds are so befogged by this technology we're sucked into. And I got to say, you know, 10 years ago, this didn't happen the way that people simply turn off and never contact you again, because you're getting programmed by looking at those devices, neuro-linguistic programming, subliminal messages sent to you all the time across the screen. God knows what is being played with in your mind. That's why you got to turn off the machinery and start meeting people again in the community. That is where our power lies. That's how we clench our fists like the boxer and start fighting. So... We've got about seven minutes left, and in that time, I want to give you some resources. Two books, well, three, really, murderbydecree.com. That's our main book with all of the evidence you're going to hear today. And uh, that's online, murderbydecree.com. You can get all these books at Amazon. Um, And don't worry that it's a pig dog corporation. One day it'll be taken over by the people, and the wealth will be ours. So don't worry about it. Two other books, Dethroning a Rogue Power, Why the Vatican Must Be Denied Membership and Presence at the United Nations and in the world community. That's a great resource. It gives you all the facts you need when you're confronting this genocidal church. And the third book, Truth Teller's Shield, a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. And that, besides our common law training manual, is our most popular item. The reason that is is because it's a lot of practical lessons that have been learned on the ground from our sweat, sweat, blood, and tears. And in it, as in my other books, we cite 50 important points from Sun Tzu and the Art of War. And, of course, we've talked about this a lot, myself and Owen Lucas and others on our show, and throughout our Republic Alliance now, spanning the borders. The uh, One of the main things that it says in the Art of War, of course, is never do what your enemy expects you to do. Never go outside the experience of your own people, but always go outside the experience of your enemy. You don't hold the protests or expecting that. You, t- you strike unannounced out of the shadow like our guerrilla army always does. We're in a guerrilla war. You don't strike and act like a conventional army and identify yourself or you get stomped by the bigger power. You strike where they don't expect it. And they don't, even though we're talking about it on the air, they can't believe it when we show up inside their churches on a Sunday morning. You know, for a while they hired security guards and everything to keep us out. It was hilarious, actually. In downtown Vancouver, after we started our actions, believe it or not, and we know this from people who work in the church, all of the churches got photos of me, photographs of me and Harriet Nahani. said, watch out for these domestic terrorists. They can disrupt your church service. So you see, it's okay to kill children. You just can't disrupt the service of the people who did it. And uh, that's the level of paranoia that we induce, just a handful of us. So it shows you they're always on edge, they're guilty and they know it, and so they're easy to provoke. And it's in the pro- here's another point from the Art of War. It's your enemy properly provoked can be your best ally. You provoke them in the right way, in the right way and they'll run off a cliff for you. You're like the mosquito in the elephant's ear. You drive them crazy and make them fall off the cliff. And we've done that. That's how we provoke the change in Canada and around the world and the resignation of Benedict in 2013, et cetera, et cetera. And so those books are a good resource. Also write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. And you can write to me individually, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Check out our other website, republicofcanada.org. That's our new framework in Canada. 
former Dominion of Canada, for people who need and must opt out of the system and within the jurisdiction of our own republic. And I tell you, whenever we're at actions and I flash my Republic of Canada citizenship card, the police always back off because they know I'm not in their jurisdiction. But all you folks who think that sending in a change of name and reclaiming your false identity and filing it with the system is somehow going to help you get out of their system, it doesn't. You're still in their jurisdiction unless you declare yourself part of a new sovereign nation. That's why the Republic exists. Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.org. Kanata means where the people sit as one around the council fire. It's a Haudenosaunee Iroquois word. So take it to heart everything you've learned today. And take the show and share it. I think it's an important one for the coming year. As we enter the new year, don't forget January 15th, the eighth anniversary of the founding of the Republic and the founding of this radio program, formerly Radio Free Canada. Now here we stand. And uh, also in February, the great events coming up. Now we're planning on doing events all over the world, but especially in Vancouver. February 9th, the first anniversary of the Simon Fraser Harbor Center Public Forum, where we first brought out these crimes in the company of over 500 survivors. And February uh, 26th, the anniversary of William Coombs' death, medical murder at St. Paul's Hospital. Two years ago, we took a coffin with William's name on it. We walked all through downtown Vancouver. We stood outside St. Paul's Hospital, where he was killed with arsenic poisoning. After naming Queen Elizabeth as the abductor of those children, we shouted through a bullhorn at the people inside, and then we walked down outside Holy Rosary Cathedral that we had occupied so many times with, with William and so many other survivors, and we reclaimed the park. It's at Dan- Dunsmere and Richards, downtown Vancouver, for those of you in Vancouver, across from Holy Rosary Cathedral, which is reclaimed territory owned now by the Squamish Indigenous Nation. Across the street from that, you'll see a big park. We reclaimed that park and we renamed it the William Coombs Memorial Park. We hold our events there. We're going to be holding picnics there in the spring. So check it out and start leafleting and taking direct action, especially at that church, because there's tunnels that run under there all through the downtown core, run to the Vancouver Club and the harbor where children and others are offloaded. Those tunnel networks is part of the thing will be documented in our new documentary, uh, Unrelenting, the sequel to Unrepentant. See all of this stuff, murderbydecree.com, under ITCCS Updates, ITCS Archives. And you can write to yours truly at angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Next week, Christmas, we'll have more. And I look forward to seeing all of you in my upcoming travels. And there'll be more on that soon. We're going to go out on a, a really good song by a, a brother from the 60s who was murdered, but his spirit lives on, Phil Oaks. Uh, folk singer called The Ballad of the Carpenter about our, our buddy Yeshua, Jesus. And on that note, I hope today has inspired you. I hope it inspires you to do more than talk, but to take direct action, find it in, within yourselves to defend our children now and the ones who will die tomorrow if we don't. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. We're back next week. Stay strong. Stay clear. We'll win. Jesus was a working man And a hero you will hear Born in the town of Bethlehem At the turning of the year 
at the turning of the year. When Jesus was a little lad, streets rang with his name, for he argued with the older men and put them all to shame. He put them all to shame. He became a wandering journeyman, and he traveled far and wide, and he noticed how wealth and poverty live always side by side, live always side by side. So he said, Come all you working men. Farmers and weavers too. If you would only stand as one, this world belongs to you. This world belongs to you. When the rich men heard what the carpenter had done, to the Roman troops they ran, saying, "Put this rebel Jesus down." He's a menace to God and man. He's a menace to God and man. The commander of the occupying troops just laughed, and then he said, "There's a cross to spare on Calvary's hill. By the weekend he'll be dead. By the weekend he'll be dead." Now Jesus walked among the poor, for the poor were his own kind, and they'd never let them get near enough to take him from behind, to take him from behind. So they hired one of the traders' trade, and an informer was he. And he sold his brother to the butcher's men for a fistful of silver money, for a fistful of silver money. And Jesus sat in the prison cell, and they beat him and offered him bribes to desert the cause of his fellow men and work for the rich men's tribe. To work for the rich men's tribe, and the sweat stood out on Jesus' brow, and the blood was in his eye when they nailed his body to the Roman cross, and they laughed as they watched him die. They laughed as they watched him die. Two thousand years have passed and gone, many a hero too, but the dream of this poor carpenter remains in the hands of you, remains in the hands of you.